<laughs> and now we can start. Locked On Bulls, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, a show for the most passionate fan base in the NBA. If you build it, they will come. Joel, you seen that movie? You seen that movie, Joe? Hosts Jordan Malley and Matt Peck dive into the best Bulls news and stories around the NBA. In our 670 of the score studios, Jordan Malley. Shout out to Jordan Malley. Did Matt Peck get a signed copy of that book? No, Matt Peck, he didn't. No, no. I'll talk to D. Rose. Yeah, you got, you're going to make, make Matt, it happen. And Matt, you will be getting your book soon. <laughs> Kick back and get ready for the best hour of your day are players buying in jim i yes fair enough and so all i was saying on this podcast the locked on bulls podcast locked on bulls five days a week locked on bulls starts now you can just see the vibe here are your hosts jordan malley and matt peck yeah i'm hoping if there's anything I'm optimistic about as we sit here and wait in this weird offseason, and I agree with you, credit to the Bulls and, and Michael Reinsdorf for getting out ahead of this and making use of this downtime with the front office search. I also am optimistic that I think that person who will be brought in will go against Michael Reinsdorf's plea to have a, quote, open mind about retaining Jim Boylan, which in my opinion is a laughable idea given the season and a half we have seen and bring in a new coach who will give these players a fresh start and a more positive frame of mind to say, okay, wipe the slate clean. Let's all buy in together. Let's start over and let's see if we can do better. I think that there is a decent chance that that happens, but back to something else you said, and this will be my f- final point on this front office stuff. And then we'll move on to something a little all bit. Right, more. Hold on a second. Uh, yeah. Save, save that thought for one second. Okay. Don't forget it. Don't let me throw you off course here. I got it. But I think, I think you and I will both agree because we have these discussions all the time, like we talked about in the green room during games. We all will agree that this team has talent. We all will agree that this team should be much better than they are, even with the injuries. Okay, I, I think we all agree that they've, the organization has used those injuries as a crutch. But yes. their record should be much better than it is. But we also will also agree that, you know, with that talent, they also have talent that I think other teams within the league would love to have. And if it's necessary to make some trades, we have guys that have value. So it's not like, in my opinion, oh, well, we're stuck with this roster. I think that people have become so disappointed with the organization, so tired of the last three years that as you mentioned they're lumping everything together and if they could just get rid of some of that hatred some of that uh those disgruntled feelings some of that disappointment and just try to make an honest assessment of what is really going on they would be like you know what zach levine wendell carter jr lowry marketing uh dad i mean we could go through the list be like, you know what, this team, from a talent standpoint, is really not as bad as the record. But we do have to say, hey, the record is who they are. So to make the necessary changes, do we need to make some trades? Why these guys have some value to fill some holes, to change things up, and not only are you bringing a fresh face in the front office, but you're bringing some fresh faces on the roster. Because we all know that, you know, if um, – Everybody, and when I mean everybody, Otto Porter opts in. The Bulls are kind of locked in from a, a salary standpoint. 
Right. Because Especially also, now with all like, this loss of revenue, yeah. cap's probably going to go down, not up. Right. So you think to really make some changes, they might have to make some trades with the roster. And you start to ask yourself that question, who are the guys that truly have value? Because I think they all have a certain amount of value. But how much does that guy mean to the organization? And what can you get in return to move this organization and this team in the right direction? So there's, there's a lot of what ifs, as we've been talking about in this podcast. But I think there's also a lot of potential. But at the end of the day, we all know that potential is a very dangerous word. Yes, it very much is. Um, and I think, you know, you're right. There's some value on this roster. People ask me a lot about Lowry. You know, we touched on him and his unhappiness. I think, you know, if you trade him now, you're trading him at an all-time low as far as what you get back for him. Zach is a lot more valuable, but I think Zach on that team-friendly contract might be a piece worth keeping around for the remainder of that contract. Uh, you know, I think most people see him right now as a complimentary piece on a good team. Uh, right now, he's the best player on a bad team. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you should trade him. Uh, going back to my final thought about this whole yeah, front sure. office, uh, may, you know, facelift and and overhaul. It, going back to what you brought up, that it has been reported that John Paxson himself has not necessarily been instigating this front office change, but one of the stronger voices in the conversation of I think we need to change things up. And I think this, to me, is the crux of why I am frustrated with this whole situation, assuming that John does stay on in some advisory role or some whatever title. Um, If he is aware that this front office structure is not working and that he is at the helm of it, and he is saying, I am willing to take whatever role the new person in the front office deems to be the correct role, the appropriate role, who among candidates would not say that the correct role for John Paxson is not a small role, but no role. If John Paxson is willing to say that this front office change needs to happen. And it's partly my idea. Why is it so hard other than maybe collecting a paycheck that in my opinion, he no longer deserves from the Reinsdorf's. Why, why does it make sense for him to stick around? Why cannot he, if the Reinsdorfs are so loyal and love him so much that they just cannot even fathom the idea of let, letting him go, why can John himself not go to them and say, guys, thanks, I appreciate the extensive opportunity. It's been great. Sorry we couldn't get a title together. I'm going to go off into the sunset and find a new hobby. I'm going to go find a lake to fish on. I don't fucking care. But why can he not do that if he sees that his front office isn't working? Why can he not be the one to say, peace, y'all, I'm out? Well, let me tell you about the John Paxson that I know, and I still uh, believe is what he thinks. I was very fortunate that when I came in and was drafted by the Bulls, my locker in the locker room was right next to his. And I know about the competitive deuces that he has, the fire inside him. I saw him go at players physically and verbally. I saw him go at officials verbally. I know how badly he wants to win. You know, John and I have conversations periodically in the, in the stadium, not planned, but when our paths cross, where we'll look up at the banner and we'll talk about, you know, the pride we have because of our names are on that banner. And, whether John admits it or not, I think the fact that he 
that people are now starting to forget that he was the guy that hit that big shot against Phoenix. He was the guy that shot, what, 64 65% against the Lakers. You know, people now see him more as the uh, guy that unfortunately failed in the front office as the Bulls than the guy that was the player hitting all the big shots and playing very well for the Chicago Bulls in the first right. three championships. Because that was 27 years ago. No, I get it. But he still wants to try to be a part of turning this thing around. And the one thing I know about John is, is that he has not – this whole thing that's happened with him is over these last, as you just pointed out, 17 years, there's been some good years and there's been some bad years. And I know for a fact that the bad years don't sit well with him. I know for a fact that, you know, he, you know, you can talk about whatever you want, and this is kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but I think the pressures of this job have, have taken a toll on him physically. I think some of the balding has come from this, this job because of the failures. Dude, he's looking more like Lex Luthor every day, and it really bothers me. <laughs> it's, it's too fitting. But, you know, I just I, – I more am concerned, quite honestly – about his overall health because he takes this job personally. I know a lot of people will, will golf at that, but he just doesn't accept the fact that, Hey man, I'm, t- I'm collecting a paycheck twice a month and I'm moving on. I know he wants nothing more for this team to win another championship, to become viable, to become a contender, not a pretender. But at some point, as you're saying, and we may have reached that we may have reached that point that I don't know because, you know, I don't want to make an un- uneducated decision. I don't want to make, you know, fly out the handle and make just an emotional decision without knowing for sure. Right. It may be that time because of what is going on within the league, what the perception is within the league. And I'm not talking about from a fan standpoint, I'm talking about from or an organizational standpoint, the other 29 organizations, the other 29 yeah. front offices, and the big stars you know, in the league and their agents. You're exactly right. Because is, what's, the, what's the, the one thing that has been lacking is the ability to sign the superstar free agent. Not the all-star, but the superstar that ha- that's going to have a huge impact, not only on this organization, but on this city. Because we all feel like it should happen. And I know a lot of people want to say, well, who wants to come to the city that Jordan built? See, well, I personally believe there's a lot of players that would love that challenge. And I don't think it's, be, it's not because, you know, it's not because of the Jordan statue that they're not coming here. There's other factors at play. And I don't think it's just because of John Paxson. I think it's everything that we've talked about, a lot of things in this podcast a lot of the little things then add up to big things. And sometimes, you know, it's the sum of the parts becomes so great that a player or players just don't want to deal with it. And what we also don't know is what are these guys? What are Zach Levine? What are Lowry Barkin? What are Otto Porter? What are these guys saying behind closed doors? Because players talk. 
you know, regardless right. of what people think, players talk behind closed doors all the time about coaches, about organizations, about other players. So are they saying things? And these are things we don't know. It's, it is not accusations that I'm making. There's just, and I remember this as a player. There's so much that goes on behind closed doors that the, that the general fan base just doesn't know and just doesn't understand. They 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 make a lot of assumptions, and they're very emotional in their decisions. Right. But the last thing I'll say is, is I agree with you. And I talk about this every time I do interviews. I still and I catch flack occasionally from the Bulls organization because of some of the things that I say. Because I'm also, I take it personally as a formal player, but I'm yeah. also a fan of the organization and current players that I feel like the Chicago Bulls are an organization that has to be, that should be held to higher standards than other teams. Not only because of the fact that they've won six championships, but also because of the fact of the players that have played here that are considered top 50, that are in the Hall of Fame. You've set a lot of precedents that need to be, in my opinion, rebuilt, reconstructed. The way the game is being played now, but with the culture that we had back in the 90s. Yeah, and and I mean, let me just say, and I'll say this on behalf of, of our Locked on Bulls listeners and Bulls fans everywhere, we appreciate when you and other players who have now gone into broadcasting are willing to do that and are willing to even on the network that is partners with the Chicago Bulls, NBC Sports Chicago, call out a turd of a game for a turd of a game. And and we've seen too many of those in the last couple of seasons in this rebuild that has failed to get off the ground. And you might get some flack from the from the Bulls to say, hey, Will, you know, that wasn't nice what you said. But I think that this this team has a problem with being thin skinned at times when things that are said about them that aren't nice, they're more concerned about, hey, they said a thing that's not nice and not well, is the thing they said that we think isn't nice true? And if so, why is that happening? And what are our failures and what can we do better to fix it instead of worrying about people seeing mean things to them? So I appreciate that because guess what? I've said far worse things about the Chicago Bulls on this podcast and even on Bulls Outsiders than you have said on pre and post game shows. But guess what? Not surprisingly, your words carry a lot more weight than mine do. So <laughs> on behalf of my fellow Bulls fans, we appreciate it when you call out the BS. Well, listen, we're not, as analysts, trying to control the narrative by any means. All we're doing is reacting to what we see at the games, on television, to what's being said. And we're not trying to push any specific type of message, anything of that nature. I just feel that we're doing – what our job requires us to do, to be analysts, to talk about what happens, what's happening on the floor, what's happening off the floor, but to not make it personal. And I don't think we've ever taken the, the, the route to make it personal, but occasionally, as you talk about, we all reach our tipping point and we get things off our chest. We feel better about it. We get back to square one. And as you talk about, the Bulls will win a game or two and you start to get some positive vibes because you see some good things going on. You actually do see some growth. You do see some improvement. And then they take a couple steps backwards. So it has been a very frustrating couple of years. But, you know, as, as we have talked about throughout this podcast today, 
you know, at the end of the day, this team should be better than they are. They have talent. It hasn't developed like we had hoped or planned. And we, we all will agree, including the organization, that changes need to be made. To what extent has yet to be determined. All right, Will. Uh, before I let you go, I did want to get a couple of your thoughts on the old days uh, to end on a lighter note. And again, appreciate how, how generous you are with your time, even though I know we all have time to fill and maybe this podcast is more fun than cleaning your your house with your wife for the 18th time um (laughs) you you were talking uh somewhere recently on maybe it was a podcast i can't recall but the takes of which dynasty was better obviously there's a lot of attention back on the old days right now with the 96 rewind series on nbc sports chicago the 72 and 10 season and also the highly anticipated espn documentary the last dance about the final 98 title season that's coming out and we learned was pushed forward from a June release date to April 19th, which is now just a couple weeks away. Um, I heard you say that you took the first three-peat better than the second three-peat as far as, like, roster. Um, And I'm not entirely surprised because you were a member of the first three-peat and not a member of the second, but your your key argument was that Horace was better than Dennis. And I would just love to get your take on that uh, because – Maybe it's just I like I'm a huge Rodman fan. You know that about me. But one of those guys is a Hall of Famer and one is not. One was a defensive player of the year a couple of times and one is not. I love Horace and getting to like chat with him when he was around for for last season's pre and post sometimes. Like, I mean, like you, I grew up idolizing Horace. But in my opinion, Dennis greater than Horace. So what's your take on that? Well, I, I kind of went that route for a couple of different reasons. Do I think Dennis belongs in the Hall of Fame? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I think sometimes because of the antics of Dennis Rodman off the floor, it kind of obscures some of the things that he did on the floor and what he was able to accomplish individually from a rebounding standpoint, from a defensive standpoint. But my point was when you talk about the triangle offense, which we ran in the first three-peat, three and they also ran in the second three-peat. I thought Horace provided more within that offense. Was Dennis a better defensive player? I think earlier in his career, yes. Was he, was he a defensive player of the year when he was with the Bulls? Uh, I don't think so. But he was an added element. You know, I'm, I'm going to make this – very clear. I mean, I feel honored to be traded for Dennis. You know, Jerry Krause felt they needed to make a trade. They felt they, there was a void that needed to be filled, and they were able to get Dennis Rodman. But I'm going to sit here and I tell you, whether the trade was made or not, I think that whether Dennis is there or not, I think this team still wins three championships, another three championships for six total. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger question is what happens if Michael doesn't retire? Do we win eight straight? Probably not, but that's a great argument. But I think Horace was a better rebounder than he gets credit for. Horace was a much better shooter. And let's, let's be very clear. I remember Horace was getting frustrated about the, the lack of shots that he was getting within the offense, within the triangle. And Phil Jackson once made the comment to Horace, if you want more shots, go get more offensive rebounds. Because – as you hear Kendall and I talk about all the time on TV, we had a pecking order. Michael, then Scotty, then Horace, then Pax, then everybody else, you know? Yeah. 
But let's also remember that Horace was an all-star as well. And think about how well Horace played in Orlando after he, you know, went there. Yeah. It's, I think that people sometimes, because people also have a tendency when players leave an organization, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth as far as, well, I don't understand why Horace left. So all of a sudden, he's not as good as they remember him being because they're pissed off that he left and went to another organization. I just am talking about the big picture. Did Dennis provide something? Yes, he did, but he also provided it within the team atmosphere. You know, I think that one of the things that people forget about was how efficient and how productive Horace was within this offense. I mean, there were games where Horace went out and got you 25 and 16. Now, did he do it on a nightly basis? No, because he didn't get enough shots to do it. Was he as good a defender as Dennis? No, but at times he was a better defender than Dennis, but he was always playing in the shadow of Michael and Scotty, always. And he wasn't as eccentric as Dennis off the floor. He was a guy that was more kind of did his own thing, voiced his displeasure with not being, you know, more recognized or highly touted, but really didn't make it public. We knew it within the team frame, but it really didn't become a public issue. I think if he would have made a lot more noise and got himself a lot more recognition as far as for what he did, then, you know, and, and quite honestly, Phil downplayed, you know, his role as well for what, you know, his importance to this organization, because, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, him and Phil always saw, saw eye to eye, unfortunately, and, and neither did, did I and Phil. So I think that might've had something to do with it. But at the end of the day, I just, when you start talking about positions, I think Michael in 91 was a better player than Michael in 96. Scotty in 91 was probably a better player than, than, Scotty in 96, and not necessarily, um, you know, from a numbers standpoint. I think they were both more athletic, both, you know, more effective, probably smarter in 96 than they were in 91. But it's – and I just – I take Horace. I talk about the guys coming off the bench. You know, you talk about Ron Harper. I think Ron Harper would be a better defender than John Paxson, but he's definitely not a better shooter. You know, we can start, you know, with this breaking this argument down, and I'm going to write something for NBC Sports Chicago. I think we're going to have some podcasts. So that's just a little teaser to where we start talking about this because I'm, I know we keep talking about 96 and 72 and 10, and let's keep showing these games. And I'm like, hey, let's not forget about those first three championships because I, yeah. and the impact that it had on this city. And, you know, because the interesting thing is, and, and I'll end on this. A local uh, sports personality called, texted me one night and said, hey, man, what do you think is – who was better, 91 or 96? And I initially texted back, and I said, maybe 96 by a hair. And then he texted back to me and said, are you sure? And gave me all these reasons why he thought 91 was better. And I texted back and said, maybe you're right. And I said, this is obviously a topic that we need to be talking about instead of separating these teams. How about we start comparing some of these teams and he was the one that actually changed my mind. And that's when I kind of got into a deeper and have now kind of vocalized that, Hey, maybe the 91 team needs to be given more credit than it's, than it's been given. If you want to just compare the records, that's fine. But there's, there is one stat and, and I think Kamka gave me this stat. If I remember correctly, he's kind of like our stat guru at NBC yeah. sports Chicago. Shout out. Kamka. I don't he's know. 
I don't know the exact number, but go back and look, look at this 91 season. And when you take the Hall of Fame as a whole, there are more guys currently in the Hall of Fame that played in 91 than in any other year in NBA history, if I am correct. If I'm not correct, then I apologize, but I think that is a true statement. So that should tell you the talent that was playing in 91 when we won the organization's first championship. So, so that's, you know, of course, like one of a million amazing stats that Cam gives us, uh, you know, and uh, God bless the basketball reference world and everything else that uh, allows us to go back and do these comparative things with these old seasons. And I mean, I, I think there is a point to what you say as far as like, well, if you look back, like was MJ a better player at, you know, whatever age he was in 91 compared to 96 and Scotty and otherwise, I think that's why. I look at the the second three-peat being impressive just because it was harder for a, a group of players that age to accomplish that. And, yeah, there's the whole, like, well, veterans win championships in the NBA. Young teams tend not to. But there's a lot of collective miles on the legs in the second three-peat. Um, but I know, like, our buddy Big Dave, he's with you. He thinks the first three-peat's better. He, he, he thinks that not in 91, but the 92 season is the best of any of the championship years. Wow. How about that? And I mean, looks like I need I need to buy Dave a beverage or two. I think you do. I think you do. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the point about players, um, you know, playing different roles or, or sacrificing, I think, is important because you saw what it did. Scotty went from being an all star to an MVP candidate in that 93, 94 season. And Horace went from being a solid complimentary player to an all star in that 93, 94 season. You saw Ron Harper take a similar sacrifice when he came on board. He was a 20 points per game, like 30 usage, 30% usage percentage player in Cleveland and with the Clippers before he came here. Everybody sacrifices when they play with Michael. And I think some players were better at that than others, but it certainly has an effect on, you know, when you talk about players who were pieces of a puzzle and which ones fit those pieces more. And of course, Horace, I think, was frustrated to not have more of an offensive say uh, and, and, and not as many offensive shots. Because as you said, he was, he was an underrated shooter and an underrated scorer, and he could do more. I think Dennis kind of just embraced his role. It's like, oh, you want me to play defense and grab rebounds? I'll do that. And so it's like it's a difference of guys embracing their role completely or being embracing of their role but also kind of disgruntled about it. You're exactly right. And the ultimate word, as you talked about, is sacrifice. And a lot of times, unfortunately, players realize that after the fact and they, they kick themselves for the rest of their lives because they're like, listen, I was in a perfect situation. And if I could have just removed my ego from the equation and made the necessary sacrifice for us to win a, a championship, then I would be considered or thought about in a much bigger picture than I am now, even though my stats say otherwise. Because we all know what a championship adds to the value of a player. All right, uh, Will, final one, and then I'll let you go. This is kind of a weird one, but since uh, you know we've been going back through the, the old days, I've also been going through my bookshelf and rereading some old books about MJ and, and the 90s Bulls. Of course, you know, rereading uh, Sam Smith's The Jordan Rules for the millionth time. But I also recently went back to a little book called Hang Time, Days and Dreams with Michael Jordan by author Bob Green. Um, and it's really enjoyable. It's about 
the first championship season. And he kind of met up with MJ on the road a couple of times and in Chicago a couple of times. And one of my favorite parts of the book is a, a, mar- a moment where you make an appearance. Uh, Bob Green has an anecdote about young bull center Will Purdue. You guys are on a road trip somewhere. I can't remember which city, but you leave the hotel looking for a restaurant to like grab a bite uh, to eat for lunch, like looking for a sandwich. And Bob Green overhears you with one of your teammates coming back in the hotel lobby saying, well, like, yeah, we found this restaurant that looked good, but it was, you know, X amount of dollars for a sandwich. Like, I'm not paying that. And Okay, let me preface this with I'm not I'm not accusing you of being cheap. I just thought it was a funny anecdote. And I'm curious, obviously, inflation, different times compared to when this book was written. What are you willing to pay for a quality sandwich right now in the year 2020? Well, that's the thing. It's it's a lot of part. A part of me hasn't changed a lot. <laughs> I, I still have the belief that if there's something I can do myself and do it and have it, the finished product be the way I want it done. I'm better off doing it myself than paying somebody to do it and then correcting what I think they did wrong. Whereas, and listen, you know this. I'm going to be very honest. What do I have for dinner on away games? when we're doing all the work from uh, the studio pot belly, you, you have a salad from pot belly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that costs less than 10 bucks. Okay. I'm more of a bang for the buck guy. All right. What kind of food can I get? Um, you know, I'm a, um, a Qdoba guy because I can go out and get Qdoba fairly inexpensive and then come home throw a couple of the uh, fresh vegetables in the microwave and then bam, I got a complete meal. Now, the one thing that we have been doing because of this, my wife and I have been cooking a lot more and even I have been stepping up and cooking occasionally because my wife in the background goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and I, 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 I use the word occasionally and we've learned about how that in a turn, you can get more bang for the buck by cooking for yourself, but you have to commit the time. Now, I, I will admit this. There are places like Witch Witch, some others that are a little more expensive that I feel are, are worth the bang for the buck, whereas there are some others that are cheaper, but they're just not that good. When it comes to food, I always talk about bang for the buck, you know, because the one thing my wife has taught me being in the hospitality industry is look for your deals. Where can you go that you can get the same steak at this price that another place will charge an enormous amount because they seem to think it's so much better, but it's actually better at the other place because uh, contestant number two has to pay so much more money because of their location and because of their air quotes name to pay for that overhead. Right? So there's, there's a lot of these things. Now, when it comes to golf, that's a whole different story. And I don't want to get in that conversation. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, uh, so, but I, mean, I will say this: as you as you mentioned that, it's so funny because as you talk about a Michael Jordan story with Bob Green, the one thing that Michael used to always say to everybody, his famous line was, "You go cheap, you get cheated." <laughs> I mean that that's good advice, and for for those who can afford to not go cheap, why go cheap? 
Um, which is why I think it's always funny when you're sitting there eating your, you know, $8 pot belly salad in the green room, watching a Bulls game. I will say this too. I enjoy it. I think it's really good. Hey, what, whatever you enjoy, the best dinners I eat when we're eating dinner at work at NBC is when your wife is kind enough to bring some of the food from the variety of restaurants that she oversees in the Chicago area and drops off dinner for all of us, which, you know, again, a million thanks. Megan is way too kind to do that. Usually, John and Dave and I, because we are not retired NBA veterans, uh, we're eating dinner out of the vending machine. So when Megan brings the food by, we really appreciate it. Well, she, she enjoys doing it, and you guys are correct. Your dinner happens at halftime when you walk back to the, the cafeteria <laughs> and shove a few bucks into the vending machine, and then it gets stuck, and you shake the hell out of it. Yeah. And every, every once in a while, you'll get something for free. <laughs> every once in a while, but never from you, just your wife. I'm just saying <laughs> that's not true for the record. Sometimes I, I have gone to pot belly to pick up dinner for will. And he says, Hey, get, get yourself whatever you want to, because he's hustling back from the United center and he can't get back to the pot belly close to our studio before it closes. So I'll, I will put that on the record too. Not cheap. Well, I try to, I try has, to make has, it worth has your purchased, while has purchased my dinner on more than one occasion. So Thanks a lot for that, Will, and thank you so much for your time. I'm glad we finally got you here on Locked On Bulls podcast. Um, tell Megan I said hi. I wish you both my best. Stay safe in these crazy times, and hopefully we will be able to have a conversation face-to-face before too long. Well, I enjoyed it. It was an honor to be on. I enjoyed the topics. Thank you very much, and keep working on that fadeaway in Michigan. I'll try. He's Will Perdue, NBA veteran, four-time NBA champion, and Bulls color analyst for NBCSportsChicago.com. Follow him on Twitter at Will underscore Perdue 32. Will, be well, man. Take it easy. All right. You got it, man. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Will. See you, bud. All right, bud. Be well. Thanks again to our sponsor of today's show, MyBookie, and for all of our sponsors on Locked On Bulls and the Locked On Podcast Network. By the way, if you haven't already, go check out that Chad Ford NBA Big Board podcast, most recent addition to Locked On's NBA coverage. Amazing content from an amazing NBA and NBA draft mind in Chad Ford. A few episodes of that brand new podcast out there for you to go look for because everyone's needing content these days. So go check that out. We'll be back tomorrow with another fresh episode. We'll probably dive into some mailbag, and Jordan and I will give you our latest thoughts on the latest developments in this Bulls front office search. And then to uh, to make the pre and post gang you know interviews complete, we got Kendall Gill lined up for you guys on Thursday. So that should be a lot of fun. For my partner Jordan Malley and Matt Peck, saying you can always follow us on that social media on Twitter, Locked On Bulls, Bulls underscore Peck, Jordan C Malley. Hit us up on that text and voicemail line three three one nine seven nine. One three six nine. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace out. Locked on Bulls, a show for the most passionate fan base in the NBA. Hosts Jordan Malley and Matt Peck dive into the best Bulls news and stories around the NBA. For more content and to stay up to date, head over to LockedOnBulls.com 